0: This is the Edisto TV Podcast, connecting the Blackwater region.
1: Welcome to another episode. This is episode 22 for the Edisto TV Podcast. I am Hugo. And I'm Tom. And we are back once again with information and uh, ruminations about the uh, surface water withdrawal stuff. Got an interesting interview today as well. Tom, you want to start us out with what's new online, Uh,
2: yeah, um had a post out there about the uh, Flint River. Another thing going on there related to the Flint River down in South Georgia and continued... Um Uh, conflict. Uh, Maybe you can comment. I know you said it was escalated to the Supreme Court.
1: Yep. Um, There has been this ongoing conversation, to put it politely, between Florida and Georgia. Alabama's got a little bit of interest in it, too, on water coming out of the Flint River system that uh, provides freshwater running out into Apalachicola Bay, which is an important oyster fishery for the state of Florida. And um, in the drought years a few years ago, A lot of the water from the Flint was not making it to Florida and Apalachicola Bay, so the oyster fishery suffered, according to some of the data. Others are looking at the oil spill and so forth for possible additional pressures on the fishery and also the amount of fishing that the oyster fishers were doing there as well. Um, Anyway, point being that that whole fuss over whose water it is and who gets to take it out of the Flint has now made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, apparently, no date has been set for argument yet, but that is going to get heard by the justices at the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah, and, and if I understand correctly, and I've looked at the overhead maps of that area, and there are just thousands of farms pulling, you know, millions and billions of gallons of of uh, water out of that river, you know, every month, and so I, I know that is a very high-pressure area, you know, for that fresh water from the river.
1: Yeah, it sure is. Um, I used to live down near Bainbridge, Georgia, and there's a lot of field agriculture there that draws water out of the flint and also out of the aquifers down there. Um, Also, something we wanted to mention was we did have the segment a couple of episodes ago where we were talking to Doug Busby and John Bass and there was the writing campaign for the uh, open position on the Soil and Water Conservation Commission. Um, Several people have asked how that came out. Vince Furtick, was one of the writing candidates, and he was uh, selected, and there was actually someone on the ballot, Brad Harmon, and he also was selected. Ironically, uh, Dr. Bass, which was how we came to know about this to begin with, was not selected in the writing candidacy. Don't know quite how that worked out, but I understand we've heard from Dr. Bass, and he's perfectly fine with how it all worked out. Yeah,
2: he goes to the meetings anyway. Yeah, exactly. So he's he's up to speed on uh, what's going on there, and he'll he'll be contributing in any way he can, I'm sure.
1: So we certainly appreciate the willingness of Dr. Bass and Vince Verdick and Brad Harmon to uh, fill those roles, and um, that's what happened for those who were wondering. Um, let's go ahead and take a break, Tom, and then when we come back we'll talk a little bit about our interview for this week, and uh, we'll have a whole lot more here on the Edisto TV podcast.
2: Hey, this is Tom from the Edisto TV podcast. If you missed Tyler Brothers' first big sale of the season, you missed a big event. But we will have another big day planned for Black Friday and then the last big sale of the season on Friday and Saturday, December 5th and 6th. There'll be 15 to 60% off of everything in the store, including snake boots, work boots, clothing from Carhartt, Columbia, Under Armour, Browning, Drake. We've got great deals on camo, on guns, ammunition, all your outdoor needs. Find us at TylerBrothers.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tyler Brothers and Wagner. Personal friendly service. Come on down and visit.
1: And we are back on the Edisto TV podcast, episode 22. And we are featuring this week an interview that we did earlier today on Tuesday the 11th with Heather Nix. Heather works on air and water quality issues for the very successful Upstate Forever organization based out of Greenville. And Tom, we've been seeing Heather around since we started working on this uh, surface water withdrawal stuff.
2: Yes, we saw her at the uh, the water resource meeting the, uh, up in Columbia, and she was actually one of the panelists on, on the day that they had the uh, environmental folks up there. And uh, she impressed me with a lot of her knowledge about what's going on and, some of the things that Upstate Forever is doing is, to me, a, a great example that we can emulate down here in the Edisto Basin.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that uh, Upstate Forever is doing is they did the um, Wild and Scenic Film Festival showing, which we attended up in Greenwood last week. Uh, we talked a little bit about that on an earlier episode of the podcast. And she was there for that. And while we saw her there, we asked her if she'd be willing to come on the podcast, and she said she would. And so she did. And so here we go with our interview with Heather Nix of Upstate Forever.
0: Well, I'm Heather Nix, and I direct the Clean Air and Water Program at Upstate Forever. And Upstate Forever is a conservation-focused nonprofit. We uh, work to protect special places and promote sensible growth throughout the 10-county Upstate region. The types of projects that we work on are anything from local policy level all the way to state policy level. We help with on the ground projects. Um, so we've got a couple of 319 implementation grants right now. We're working in those a few small subwatersheds to implement better agricultural practices that will improve water quality and then also to um, Repair and replace some failing septic tanks. So, those will result in obviously on the ground real improvements to water quality. But we also do things like um, look at pavement standards of different counties and cities. So, basically, how much pavement does everyone require to be installed when a new development happens? And then we try to work with those, the staff at that city or county, to see if those standards are, are appropriate or if we. To make some adjustments. We, several years ago, did a parking study where we flew over on um, the busiest days of the year, and we took stereo photographs of some of the busiest parking lots within the Greenville area. So we did it on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, typically, you know, the biggest shopping day of the year. And then we came back, and with the help of some great staff and some great Furman University students, we counted all of the cars and all of the parking spaces. And we came up with basically an assessment of how much parking did we actually need to accommodate the busiest days of the year. And then we worked with some, our, our local city to adjust some of their parking ratios. So they now in some cases require less parking and they're very comfortable with that because we have real numbers that show that that's adequate even for the busiest days of the year. So really our projects range significantly. We've worked on Superfund cleanup sites. Um, one of our local rivers, the 12 Mile River, was part of a, a Superfund site. So we uh, engaged with the EPA and, and kind of monitored how that went along. And then we're also working to, now that it's cleaned up, we're working to help it be a recreational resource and um, an economic boost to the community.
3: Heather, can you tell us a little bit about the event that we saw you at the other night, the Wild and Scenic uh Film Festival thing? What was that and and why did you do it and how did it go?
0: Sure. Well, the Wild and Scenic Film Festival is an event that is hosted each year by CIRCLE, the South Yuba River Citizens League. They are located out west, but they um, basically have a several-day film festival, and people submit films from all over the country, mainly focused on water-related issues or recreation, but just focus on water in some way. They choose some winners from their film festival, and then that package of films can be shown across the country. So this was the, I believe the third time that we had hosted it. We, we haven't hosted it for a few years, but we wanted to bring it to the Greenwood community in particular this year. The festival is really just a fun way to engage the public about water, issues are just about some of their local water resources. The films are, of course, from all over the place, but of course you you get sponsors and and other groups that co-host the the session with us. And so um, in between the films, we talk a little bit about some of the the water issues and the water work that's happening locally. Um, We are really pleased with how it went. We had a good turnout and um, had some great door prizes that I think everyone enjoyed Um, lots of winners. I think everyone enjoyed that. And um, overall, it just started a lot of good conversations, I think, and and really helped us meet a a different segment of the community that we don't always interact with.
3: Well, I know Tom and I both had a really good time and uh, really liked the facility there in Greenwood, too. A nice theater you had it in. And uh, one of the things you had there, I I was hoping you talk about a bit, too, is this web of water book that y'all have.
0: Yes, so we were um have just completed the Web of Water book. It's a really beautiful photographic journey through the Saluda-Reedy watershed. Um if you're not familiar with that watershed, it it mostly encompasses most of Greenville County, a portion of Anderson County, drains into Lawrence and then into Greenwood County as well. And um both the Saluda and the Reedy rivers drain into Lake Greenwood. They form Lake Greenwood. Um and and then continue on downstream. But we've done a tremendous amount of work in the Saluda Reedy watershed in particular. And so we were able to work with uh, four South Carolina photographers and um, they took pictures from the headwaters all the way down to Lake Greenwood from everything from very large landscape shots down to some, some really um, macro, very close-ups of of ants and and bees and different insects, and it's really just some stunning photography. Uh, we worked with John Lane from Wofford University, a local author, and he um, wrote kind of the the story that goes along with the pictures, and we had it printed locally in Spartanburg. Um, so overall, you know, the the whole project was a very South Carolina-focused um, work, and we're really excited about how it turned out. We were able to raise funds to pay for all of the cost of the book, and so now um, we're selling the books for forty dollars a piece, and all of the proceeds are going to support State Forever's work in the Saluda Reedy Watershed.
3: Outstanding, and I know it's available on y'all's website. We'll provide a link for that with the show notes when we when we do the show. Um, I know if I guess it was two or three years ago now. Um, Mr. White, Brad Weich, came down and talked to the uh, Friends of the Edisto at their annual meeting in Orangeburg, and he was talking about how Upstate Forever came to be. For listeners to the podcast who may not know the story, can can you give me the sort of the the short version of how y'all started and what you've become?
0: Sure. I I won't do it nearly the justice that that Brad did, I'm sure, but um, basically Brad grew up in the Greenville area. His family was was very um, conservation-focused and spent a lot of time out in nature. He followed kind of in his father's footsteps and became an environmental attorney, and he practice law for for many years and then just kind of saw how the community was changing and significant growth is happening in the Greenville Spartanburg area in particular. Um and just he saw how that was starting to affect quality of life and got concerned with it. And so he um started upstate forever, kind of in his in his basement, so to speak. Um And it has just grown into a a larger, much larger organization. We have, we've been around for about 17 years. We've got about 17 um, uh, staff members full and part-time. And we've got two offices, one in downtown Greenville and one in downtown Spartanburg.
3: What are your thoughts on the existing Surface Water Withdrawal Act and and the interest that we have in having that get changed to something that works a little better to protect rivers all over South Carolina.
0: Sure. Well, the existing Surface Water Withdrawal Act has some some holes that I think have become very apparent with, with what's happened around the Edisto and, and all of the work that y'all have done in particular. Um, some of the problems or some of the, the parts of it that we would like to see changed are The safe yield, obviously, has become a big issue. We need to make sure that we are not allocating more water than we safely can, and that needs to include even during drought periods. We need to have um, drought protocols that we can put in place that um, that would help govern all water withdrawals and to make sure that even during times of drought, we still have water in the river. We also need to start looking at... The fact that we grandfathered in basically all water users at their existing water usage there, if you just look in the past 10 or 20 years at some of the technological advances that have been able to reduce water usage, um, whether it be residential or through industrial uses, there's a lot of possibility, especially moving forward, that we'll continue to find new ways for industry to continue to operate at their same, their current levels but by using less water. And we need to start being able to recognize that some of that, that water may actually not be needed by, by withdrawals and that um, we need to, to reflect that within the, the policy.
3: Okay. Um, talking about you know stormwater and wastewater, uh, Tom and I, along with Doug Busby, were at the um, South Carolina Water Resources Conference a few weeks ago in Columbia, and there was a lot of talk there about the idea that there should be user fees in place, either for stormwater management or for water withdrawal. Have you all looked at user fees as a funding option for this stuff, and what kind of reception have you gotten if you have?
0: Sure. Um, in particular, a lot of the focus has been on stormwater fees, and actually there are several uh, municipalities and counties in the upstate that have already implemented stormwater fees. I'm most familiar with Greenville County, so I can speak to that. It it was implemented, gosh, probably in the early 2000s, maybe 2002, um, when they received their their ms4 permit um so greenville county is of course as are many other counties and cities responsible for implementing a stormwater program um, it includes everything from basic, you know, education about stormwater issues to some much more technical work that they do. So the way that Greenville County and, and again, several other governments chose to fund that that workload was by implementing a stormwater fee. It's a fee, not a tax, although it is um, attached to the property taxes. And last time I checked, it ran about $24 per um, what they call equivalent residential unit. So what Greenville County did is they looked at how much impervious surface, on average, um, was created by one resident, so one house, household. And then they, they took that, that became an equivalent residential unit, and so for every one of one of those units you would pay 24 dollars so the average homeowner pays 24 dollars a year in order to support the work the stormwater work that the county does Um, but obviously as you move into commercial facilities or industrial facilities that would have a lot more equivalent residential units um, they would they would pay an increased stormwater fee that has been uh, really successful there are a lot of questions about it at first but i think that everyone has gotten comfortable with the fact that it's um it's equitable, it's it's a fairly low fee, so you know, there's not a lot of burden on any, any one household. Um, but it certainly raised the money for, for the county, for the city, for, for multiple other you know, all of the governments that have adopted it. It's raised the funds for them to be able to implement their work and make some stormwater improvement.
2: I think the way you asked the question, I thought where we were going was more charging people for the consumption of water and you're doing it on the wastewater side, um, is there anything uh, related to consumption? So if you're a, I don't know, a municipality versus if you're a business or whatever, and you're, or an agricultural entity that's consuming hundreds of millions of gallons per month, um, mm-hmm. has there ever been any discussion of charging people for the use of the water?
0: To my knowledge, there has not been many discussions about actual charging for water withdrawals from streams. Um, I heard Dana Beach talk about that at the Water Resource Conference a few weeks ago and I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, you know, obviously water um, like the, the example that Dana gave was that if you have a bottle of water that's empty, it's not worth anything. And that the, the water that is in that bottle is what gives that bottle value and it's the one part of, of bottled water that no one that they don't pay for the company doesn't pay for Thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it and um you know i think it's certainly something that that should be on the table and that that we should start a conversation about but but yes certainly um in in our in my experience or to my knowledge the storm the fees have been related to stormwater of course when When we as individuals or as businesses, if we get water from our our drinking water utility, you know, we, of course, pay for that service. And then on the wastewater side of things, we, of course, pay for the treatment of that that wastewater as well.
3: Um, I I guess if Heather has anything to say about, you know, the coming legislative session, things that she's looking at or paying attention to um, or... Any rumor she's heard of anybody stepping up to do anything on behalf of the uh, surface water withdrawal issue? Uh, we're always good for a good rumor.
0: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, being in Greenville, you know, I don't, I don't have my finger on the the pulse of all of the the statewide political happenings, but certainly among the conservation communities, there's been a lot of conversations about the Surface Water Withdrawal Act and the need to focus on that and the need to, to fix the issues that have obviously um, come up with it. So I, I think I expect that to be one of the major focuses of the conservation community and hopefully we'll be able to make some progress along those lines.
3: Yeah, because y'all are involved with Ann Timberlake in the Conservation Common Agenda, aren't y'all? Yes, so, so we're hoping that once again the uh, the water withdrawal thing gets some profile in that.
0: Yes, and and the common agenda is a a group of across the state. It's it's a lot of conservation organizations come together and including the conservation voters, but of course you know a lot of other organizations come together and and put together what kind of the top issues might be for that year and and what the focus will be.
2: I don't know. I feel like you're doing an awful lot up there, and I feel like some of this are things that we think about uh, doing or having people do, you know, in the Edisto River Basin. And um, I just wonder if you have any words of uh, wisdom and advice to us as we try to, um, you know, maybe long term, try to have uh, an effect uh, similar to what you all are doing.
0: So we've been lucky in that we had some, some really strong funding. We were able to do about five years worth of research on the Saluda Reedy watershed. Um, not everyone has that luxury and, and we certainly don't have that luxury in a lot of the other watersheds that we work in. But some of the, the big lessons that we've learned is, um, are that It's really important to work with the stakeholders in your community, and that might include everyone from other conservation groups to the county, to the city, to their planning staff, to their land development staff, to um, also include your wastewater utilities, your drinking water utilities, and even go talk to developers and, and and kind of find where your common ground is. We were surprised several years ago, we started on a project to try to incentivize development that was better for water quality. And so we sat down and interviewed probably 20 or 25 different developers or people that worked in the development community, engineers, you know, that sort of thing. And we were really surprised to find that What they wanted to do was very much in line with what we wanted them to do, and so we were able to identify that some of the regulations that we thought were really helping make an improvement were also having some unintended consequences, and we're actually changing the, the pattern of development some, and we're putting some, some pretty significant restrictions on developers that weren't the intent of the regulation. So we were able to, to work together and collectively move forward and identify some ways that we could improve the regulations, help developers um, build more efficiently and hopefully make more of a profit off of their developments while also improving um, making improvements in the developments that would be better for water quality and water quantity overall. So I would I would highly recommend trying to focus on finding some common ground and, and making some of those sorts of improvements. We've also had some good luck. I mentioned the parking study that we did and identified that um, that we could do with less parking in some places. Now, the city of Greenville adopted both a minimum requirement and also a maximum requirement. They, they've they had that in place for some time. But um Several in several instances, we were able to reduce the minimums and that was based on that's for commercial development um, what that does is it still gives the developers flexibility if they want to build a larger parking lot they're still able to do that, but they don't have to so it's really it gives them that that choice and it helps them to build what they need and not overspend by having to buy more land, pave a larger surface, and manage more stormwater coming off the site. So it really was kind of a win-win because it reduced development costs for developers while also reducing stormwater runoff.
3: Yeah, that's such a good example. I mean, something that we've been saying from the very beginning here is that this shouldn't be a political issue. It, it, it's not us against them. I mean, there is a limited resource, and we have to find the best way to manage it so that everybody can get what they need. I don't think there's a question there, is there?
2: No, but um...
0: no, I absolutely agree with you, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: no, I, I, I think it's a great example too. I, I think it's great what y'all are doing, and um, I, I think we are just gonna listen and learn and and, and, uh, try to keep moving in the right direction, you know? Is there anything new coming up? uh, Any new projects or programs or anything, events uh, that you're sponsoring or involved in, anything you'd wanna promote?
0: Um, We're we're starting gearing up to focus on some recreational initiatives to really start reconnecting people to their local rivers. So we're working on everything from uh, starting to map Blueways that are either existing, and and blueways are just another word for paddle trails, so we're looking for paddle trails that might exist already on the upstate rivers or where they should exist on upstate rivers. Um, We're also gearing up to start a volunteer water quality monitoring program that's citizen-based. So if if citizens that are in the upstate are interested, you know they certainly can contact us and they can go through some trainings and then be um, be certified to be able to go out and do some water quality sampling in streams near where they live or, or work. So we would would love to have some uh, participation in that. And those those projects will be kicking off early next year.
3: Well, when you get to those things kicking off, if you'd like us to uh, give you a shout-out down here, give us a call, and we'll happily talk about it here on the podcast.
0: Great. That'd be awesome. Thanks.
3: All right. Well, I think that's everything, and I know you've got to get to somewhere in 15 minutes. So, uh, Tom, are we
1: going to let her go? I think so. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, Heather, very much.
0: Thank you all. Good talking to you.
1: So there you have Heather Nix talking to us about air and water quality issues and a bunch of other stuff on behalf of Upstate Forever. Really appreciate Heather taking the time to come on with us. Tom, I I thought it was interesting, You, you know, we don't really even know what we're becoming here with Edisto TV and Edisto Concerns, but Upstate Forever is an interesting model of a group that started out with the same kind of concerns that we started with and, you know, how they've grown over the 17 years that they've been there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's very interesting hearing what they're uh, focused on, you know, a lot of the surface um, runoff and things like that, that, um, you know, every little bit makes a difference. That's what what I'm starting to realize is that every little bit, especially when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, you know, you just need to make a difference where you can. And they're, they're really helping to educate the public, get people on board, get legislators on board, get everybody working together with a common goal.
1: Yeah. And speaking of working together with a common goal, I hate to close on a down note, but I did speak to Doug Busby Monday night after meeting that he attended between Environmental Interests and the Farm Bureau. And I'm sad to report that his impression is that Farm Bureau is unwilling to work with us to find mutually acceptable solutions to the water withdrawal issue. I guess if they won't help us, we'll just have to keep working until they see the light. Um, I will say David Winkles has made his position very clear, and he swings a lot of weight with the legislature, we know this, but I think you and I, Tom, both agree, along with a lot of other people, that on the water withdrawal issue, Mr. Winkles is just on the wrong side of the facts. I fully expect the money and power he exerts in their lobbying and PR our efforts will continue to be deployed against us but I am confident that in time we will see a resolution that improves the current situation. It's just a shame that we have to fight to get there, but it's increasingly clear that it's going to have to be that way.
2: Yeah, it it could end up being a fight. I think, uh, you know, next thing I'd like to do is, is try to line up farmers who uh, care about the rivers that don't believe that uh, farmers need, need special exemption or, or that anyone, even a farmer should be able to take the river dry. And so um, you know, we've talked to people in uh, lower part of the state that are uh, concerned about fisheries and, and shrimp and everything else going in there and how the upstream affects them. We've got, um, you know, a, a number of agricultural interests that uh, have concerns about uh, the current surface water withdrawal law. And I think if we can get the farmers to make it clear that Farm Bureau and David Winkles does not speak for them, Maybe we could have an an impact.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's unfortunate that Mr. Winkles is unwilling to put his organization on the right side of this issue because a lot of what they have to say has some merit. And they could speak very powerfully and persuasively on the side of their concerns. But for them to absolutely refuse to admit that there's a problem here that needs to be addressed— is unconscionable. And if that's how it's going to be, we're going to have to stand against them. And if it becomes oppositional, that's how it's got to be.
2: Yeah, I, I always... You, you think, you know, you see a stupid law or something's wrong or something and you find out like, well, who, how did this happen? And then, you know, people say, oh, it's the money. Well, I'm afraid that might be the case. And so I'm hoping that we have enough legislators and enough people to speak up and say, well, you know, just because they have money, just because they have lobbyists, Um, that doesn't make them right, and I I don't think that uh, we should stand for it. So hopefully we'll uh, gather the troops and and be ready for a good fight this legislative session. But uh, if Winkles is going to fight against us, uh, it's going to be a very tough
1: battle. Yeah, and on that note, um, we will bring it to a close for another edition of the Edisto TV podcast. This has been Episode 22. We'll see you in a week with the next episode of the Edisto TV podcast.
0: This is the Edisto TV podcast, produced by Edisto TV, connecting the Blackwater region.